Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, under lockdown like most of the world right now. I want to give a quick shout out to some of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store. And when we're not on lockdown, a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. All right, folks, so welcome to the program again. Ed Fallon with you here. Later in the program, Ron Yarnell joining us to talk about a St. Patrick's Day message around the remarkable ascendancy of Sinn Féin in Ireland. We'll also talk with uh, Dr. Charles Goldman about kind of an update on the political horizon with the presidential campaign. We'll also talk with Charles about the uh, coronavirus. But first, I'm uh, delighted to go to our phone and welcome Dr. Mark Allen Derry to the program. He's the Chief Innovation Officer for Access Health. That's the largest healthcare provider in, I believe, New Orleans, perhaps all of Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. Dr. Derry, welcome to the program. And you must be one tired man right now. I am. You know, I am a, um, obviously, as you know this, as you and I have been friends for years, I'm an infectious diseases doctor. And, uh, you know, it was funny because today I was, uh, I, you know, I was talking to a friend and they were gushing over Dr. Anthony Fauci. And, you know, and I was like, Dr. Anthony Fauci making infectious diseases doctors look cool all over again. And so, uh, (laughs) certainly looking at his leadership has been great. But yeah, it's been a very busy time. This is something that, you know, I remember reading about in late December, and I was talking to my wife about it, about how these coronaviruses are things that in the past have really, you know, have done a number. You know, when you look at previous, in this century at least, coronaviruses, we've had the the SARS virus, and I'm sure you remember that, 2002, 2003. Of course. And what happened there, that that virus um, actually just jumped right out of, uh, out of uh, bats uh, directly into civet cats, um, and then from civet cats, it, dr- it jumped directly uh, into humans. And just a quick little aside, a little interesting interesting factoid there is that civet cats are usually uh, enjoyed by the uh, Chinese uh, f- uh, people, usually around uh, the Chinese New Year, to ward off respiratory diseases. And so that was an interesting little... When you say, you know, when you say enjoyed, you mean as, as a meal? As a meal, yes. Right, yes. okay. Cats are, <laughs> not, are not, enjoyed, a, uh, not exactly favorable to the uh, typical American palate, but I get you. Sure, sure. But, yeah. but it's just is slightly ironic that that... that, that that the civet cat that is typically eaten for respiratory, to ward off respiratory diseases, was the right. one that actually was responsible for SARS. Yeah, some irony this, there. Some irony yes, there. Yes, yeah, some irony. Then the second big thing that happened was the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. We refer to that as MERS. So it has a quite a high uh, uh, case uh, fatality rate. Uh, fortunately, its infectivity is very little, and it and uh, and it's mostly uh, located in the Arabian uh, Peninsula. So the response the response to this one is so much more extreme. Is, is that an indication that this is much worse than either SARS or MERS? I would definitely, well, to say it's worse, I would definitely say when you're looking at case fatality or the mortality rates, um, yeah, I would say that this one is, 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 is quite infectious uh, and also is a quite, uh, you know, it has mortality rates that are bumping anywhere between um, uh, two, uh, you know, depending on wh- whose data you look at, South Korea has, you know, have been testing people, almost 20,000 people a day, and so their, their fatality rates or their mortality rates rates around 0.5 percent who's mortality rates give us 3.4 and when you look at the u.s mortality rates at least uh late last week they were somewhere around 5.7 and so if you kind of like look at all those in in total and when you think about the last big great pandemic that we had it was in 1918 right the spanish flu right although the spanish don't like to use that (laughs) of course they don't (laughs) the, the great the great flu of 1918 or the 1918 flu um that that mortality rate it's it's difficult to really nail it down but some people will say it's anywhere between 2.5 to 3 3% and so we're looking at a potential virus that could 
potentially have, if not uh, approaching, maybe even similar to what the 1918 uh, pandemic was. So, uh, you know, I've been, you know, we've been sounding the alarms, we being as infectious diseases doctor, and this takes me back to, as we were talking about Dr. Fauci, who's really been an inspiration for all ID doctors here to see that we've been really sounding the alarm that, hey, this one is real. This is, you know, I know in the past we saw the H5N1 and the H1N1, those, you know, they they had some, you know, some solid uh, mortality rates, but they just weren't as infectious. This one, it's been unbelievable to see the spread that this has had uh, globally, uh, and it, it and it just seemed like the U.S. Um, and certainly our our governmental response um, has been really quite. Uh, it, it's been stunning to see it. I mean, you know, we feel like we're just shaking the people at the top and saying, "Hey, you got to take this seriously." And it just seemed like uh, it just seemed like yesterday, uh, which was, I think, Monday. I can't remember what day it was. Monday yes. the sixteenth. Yes. The the president finally. It seemed as though they finally kind of took a turn. You know, they they weren't blaming the Democrats for causing this or you know some other element of you know we're just still trying to you know the Democrats are trying to take down the president. They seemed like they finally realized that people are truly dying from this disease. And until we do something dramatic, like have some sort of, uh, you know, like what we saw in New Orleans. Uh, in fact, you opened your, you know, your show here at the top by saying that you were in lockdown. And, and certainly we are approaching that here in New Orleans uh, as well. And I think that probably in the next couple of weeks, we're going to probably start, if not probably the next week, we're going to probably start seeing this pretty regularly throughout the country. And is, is, is that the appropriate response? Is that going too Absolutely. far? It is. Okay. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I most people, uh, I hope, have heard by now about this concept of flattening the curve. And let me kind of explain what that means. And so if we, if all if all of the U.S., let's say, were to uh, get infected with this virus more or less within a very, very small period of time, you would have a huge spike of disease, right? It's a huge spike. And, and it would surpass the need uh, to surpass the capability of hospitals and healthcare system to care for those people, especially those that are the most critically ill. And so what we're trying to do is by doing this social distancing and by spreading, you know, by keeping the shutting down Jazz Fest, shutting down French Quarter Fest, you know, the NBA canceling, March Madness, those were all great decisions. This past weekend, uh, we usually have this huge St. Patrick's Day parade canceled, all of these things canceled um, in an effort to keep people at home and to limit that spread. Now, we know that this virus is going to then slowly spread out through the community. So the amount of time it's going to take is longer, but we would rather that from a public health perspective because it would keep the cases below the the capacity of what uh, uh, physicians and hospitals can care for. So we can continue to care for people. We don't get all of a sudden influx of, of patients that come in and then we would have to ration out who gets a ventilator. Okay, so That's qu- really very scary. Okay, so quarantine isn't about stopping the virus. It's about slowing it down, about suppressing it for a while. But how does that... Suppressing it, it, the transmission. The trans- but it, but, it, and that takes some of the burden off of the healthcare system, which again is really good news for, for you and for all of us. But but what um, in the end, it's going to keep spreading. I mean, what, what, what eventually is going to stop the virus. I mean, again, back in 1918, something eventually stopped the spread of the Spanish flu. Something eventually stopped the spread of of SARS and MERS. What's going to stop the coronavirus from continuing to spread? I I mean, it's very like, well, we're not likely to see a vaccine and we're not likely to see a quote-unquote cure at any time. So typically with these sorts of things, the virus just needs to kind of peter itself out, quite frankly. It's just, it's going to just not, it's going to just, you know, quite frankly, it's going to run out of people to infect. I mean, that's really how that works. I mean, uh, you know, this is some pretty frank talk here, but the people who are going to die from the disease unfortunately, and we're going to do everything that we can to prevent that, of course, uh, but people are going to pass from the disease, uh, and then the people who are going to be left are people who are going to continue uh, to, to do well with the disease, because as you know, 80% of people who have COVID-19 uh, do well. Uh, the 20% who don't do well, we see mortality rates bumping up against 15% amongst those that are advanced in age, and not only advanced in age, 
but also have comorbidities. In other words, have diabetes, cardiovascular disease, they're smokers, um, obesity, this sort of stuff. So, so, so basically, basically, uh, when the virus runs out of food, and by food I mean human beings, yes. it eventually dies. It starves to death, I, I, essentially. That's not, that's not an inaccurate way of looking at it. But yes, obviously, viruses, pastry, viruses um, definitely need a host. They need a human host. Uh, this virus, like most human viruses, need a human host to circulate. And once that circulate, once they've kind of used up all of the uh, – uh, this is what herd immunity essentially is. Once the population essentially becomes immune to it, and then ultimately the virus will just kind of peter away. And, and kind of not unlike what happened with SARS. Okay. And so you gain immunity by, by catching the virus, obviously. But in what other ways do, do, do does our species gain immunity to coronavirus? Well, ideally vaccines. And okay. so uh, under optimal situations um, and, you know, and, and I hope that we have learned our lesson this time significantly because uh, coronavirus, uh, so SARS happened in 2000 to 2003. So we're looking at maybe 17 years, 18 years ago. We should have had some sort of coronavirus vaccine by now. Do you know what I'm saying? That should have been right. that, you know, that if maybe would not have targeted this particular coronavirus as re that's referred to as SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, or the disease, which is referred to as COVID-19, um, that it may have offered some partial immunity. Do you know what I'm saying? So ideally moving forward, you know, some of the other problems that we have, too, is that you know, it, we just don't stockpile anything. Well, first of all, we don't really make anything anymore here. Uh, so, uh, and then we don't stockpile anything. And as I'm as I'm learning about some of the uh, the testing uh, elements that we do for COVID, I just learned today um, some of the swabs uh, that are used. These are some special swabs uh, that you find pretty regularly in medicine, but. Um, they happen to be made in China and in Italy, and those are two countries right yeah, now that, right, as right. you know, that are in in, in some form of of of, uh, of lockdown. Although hopefully, I think China may be kind of coming back up again. Sounds but you like can it. See, you can see how these um, uh, these pandemics, when especially when you see a lockdown in a country, uh, can can affect the production uh, in that in that country sure. and how all the end the, the byproduct that 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 that, that uh, um, so we at the end here are uh, you know we're without any um, without any testing swabs. An example, another example of that was uh, when Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico. Well, it turns out that 80 to 90 percent of all IV uh, bags <laughs> that get produced for the globe are made in one place uh, in Puerto Rico. Wow, and, and so after that that hurricane, besides all the horribleness that happened with it, one of the end, end results was that w there was a shortage of IV bags as well. So, um, and so we've just got a little bit of time left here, uh, Dr. Derry. So a quick question I've been meaning to ask. Do those little masks work? So let me just quickly just do the mask thing real quickly, okay? So the size of the virus is 0.1 micron. And to give that size some context, the size of a human hair is 75 microns. So when you look at those surgical masks, the stitching of that mask uh, is so big compared to that 0.1 micron virus um, that it's like using a chain link fence to hold back flooding waters. In other but words, it doesn't work. Not only that, but the sides of the mask are usually bunched up. So your mouth is right up against the mask, but there's you know, the sides of the mask are bunched up. So what you really need is to use something uh, which we refer to as N95s or right. N99s. Yeah. Uh, those are the so-called respirators. Those are those uh, tight-fitting yeah. masks that fit on your face. Right. The thing with those masks is that you can only wear them for like 15 minutes. Right. Yeah, we bought a bunch minutes. of those. We bought a bunch of those for folks that we knew were struggling with the fires out west uh, a little, uh, a couple years ago. Hey, um, we're right. out of time, uh, Dr. Derry. I really, I mean, you, you're working tirelessly in the ER, and I don't know how you're keeping going, but again, a debt of gratitude to you and all the other medical professionals who are helping to deal with those who are most vulnerable in this crisis. So again, thank you. Thank you uh, so much, Ed. Thank you for all that you do uh, for uh, for us as well uh, by providing us great content here Thank in New you. Orleans. Thank you so much. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Mark Allen Derry. He's an infectious disease physician in New Orleans. We'll be back in a minute. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. 
Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, it was a delight to hear from uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry, who knows infectious disease uh, better than anyone I know and is, of course, right now working incredibly hard. Uh, I want to take a second to uh, thank a couple of our local business partners here in the Des Moines Metro. A Ritual Cafe located at 13th Street in downtown Des Moines. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Uh, thanks also to Bold Iowa, an Iowa-based nonprofit fighting climate change and uh, working for renewable energy alternatives. That's Bold Iowa. All right, welcoming to the program now, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman, uh, located here in Des Moines, not an infectious disease physician, but spending a lot of time at the hospital these days. And um, Charles, what's it like there on the front lines? Well, at the moment, uh, it's actually pretty quiet. Um, you know, a lot of the physicians are gone because of uh, spring break week. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's kind of a testament to how incoherent I think our approach to this virus has been, which is that um, I, I don't, I'm really not sure we should have all this number of physicians gone at this point, um, especially with the uncertainty of them being able to get back. But, you know, we don't have that kind of system. I think that um, Dr. Fauci, you know, who's been the, the sane and rational face of the uh, Trump administration in terms of, of what we're facing, really made a great point the other day when he was talking about that uh, this is not a system built for this. We, we've built a system of sickness care, um, which is for diseases of excess. I mean, it's a system dedicated toward highly technological uh, addressing of heart disease, of uh, stroke, of cancer, and yet it's not a system that's built for what really through history of humanity has been the main reason, the main numerical reason for death, which is infectious disease. I think that, you know, just for a little context, um, two to three million people a year in, in Africa die of complications of malaria. Right. Um, and right. that's just an accepted um, primary cause of death. And, and we're, a, we're a culture and a society where people live into a, a, an old age. And so we deal with the diseases of becoming old. And right. we're so, now finding out. So, yeah, so who, finding who, out. who do we blame? I mean, you can't blame this on Trump, right? <laughs> no, no, no. This, no. Is not, this, is not, this is not to blame this on Trump. This is, this is the way that our system has evolved because we have eradicated a lot of the uh, disease causes. I mean, even if you just go back 100 years, one of the leading killers of, of people in the United States were waterborne diseases. Now, we didn't get rid of waterborne diseases like typhoid by 
giving antibiotics, we got rid of waterborne diseases by cleaning up the water that we were drinking. Right. You know, so it, it's not very sexy. It's much sexier to, you know, advertise Keytruda or other new drugs on TV right. than it is to say we just need to keep the water clean. Maybe a whole, whole number of people won't die. Diphtheria. So, so, so in, in, you know, but, but let me just bring it back to the sure. current crisis here. In, in, in Iowa, we have yet to see the kind of rampant... Uh, uh, expression of the coronavirus as we've seen elsewhere. I mean, in, in New Orleans, where Dr. Derry is located, it's it's very intense right now. There's there's. I mean, he was seeing patients, uh, you, know, you know, for uh, what 14, 15 hours a day. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but the projection is that Iowa is likely to see a similar increase. And your assessment is that we may not be ready. Well, I think that that I I, I would agree. I think we're as unready as any other. Uh, place in the United States because um, is, and, and this, maybe it's not fair because there's been a lot of planning as to how to process these patients in a way that doesn't manage to expose everybody um, but there's only so many ventilators right. in the city yeah. we can use we can use ventilators at outlying facilities and move the patients around um, but we're at a point where, uh, you know, as I think I, t- I said before we get on, um, we may well be, as other areas are talking about, having to triage the use of the ventilator. The ventilator right. is the main issue here. And, and this is where I have the biggest trouble with having this administration in place. You know, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, FDR and his administration was able to change consumer-oriented manufacturing to war-oriented manufacturing within the space of four to six weeks. So once you knew what was going on in Wuhan in December, and this administration did know what was going on in Wuhan in December, the thing that should have been was not talking about what are we going to do if the stock market goes down, which seemed to be their biggest concern. Um, It should have been to talk to the manufacturers of ventilators in the United States and say, we want you to produce... 20,000 or 25,000 ventilators in the next two months. And is that happening now? Or have they ramped up production of those ventilators now? They They still still haven't done it. Nothing's been done. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, and there should be medical units of National Guard setting up on on Camp Dodge. These are things that should be done because the problem is going to be that as you close the economy down, that's already going to undercut the number of healthcare workers available because some of those healthcare workers need to stay home but, and take well, care of the kids. Well, yeah, the, the, the economy shutting down has been um, drastic and instant. Uh, I mean, it is mm-hmm. remarkable to me how many things that I would normally be involved with, that I was committed to being involved with for the past, for the next couple of weeks, that just aren't happening now. And, right, uh, and, that's, a good, and that's a good thing. And, and, it's and, a good thing, know, but it, it, it affects, um, it affects your, your, your local businesses, um, uh, you know, your schools. Uh, it affects so many different elements of our life in a really dramatic way, and that can't be helped. But like That's you said, right. I mean, the things that we really need right now um, could be, could have been ramped up in the, in, you know, back in December. But again, you know, when you got a president who calls the coronavirus the Chinese virus or a foreign virus, you know, how much can you really expect from somebody with that level of understanding? Well, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, we know he's not, a, he's not a reader. You know, I mean, Obama would have been sitting in the White House with a pile of loose leaves working his way through them, trying to understand the big picture, you know, and and you've talked about this before about climate change, and I would say that we're in a war with a virus, and if you're in a war with a virus, you do exactly the things that, you know, they had to do in World War II. You so- convert immediately to a manufacturing base that's directed towards that, and remember, rationing came in almost immediately. Right. Right. Of consumer items, yeah. and you know, no one's asking people to ration out in a, into eternity. This is just most likely a two to three month derangement of things, and it's going. Of course, there's going to be carryover. Yeah. But you know that that's the problem, and and they were more concerned. I mean, literally, one of the actions of the president was to call uh, the you know what's his name who runs the NFL and ask him not to cancel the season because it would it would be bad. Oh really? You know, he, he thought, Trump did that? Yeah. that? That's news to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and also the U, whatever the fighting championship. Okay, that's not what he should have been wasting his time with. And then he <laughs> went golfing, you know, that weekend two weekends ago. So my point is, is that we should 
the testing the testing issue is a different issue. Right. The testing issue is a combination of the desire to make it profitable for American labs, coupled with unbelievable mistakes by the CDC, which had nothing to do with Trump. They were internal to the CDC. Yeah. So, so you know that that but, part of it, I don't but, have as much problem. But but right now, again, regardless of what President Trump has said, uh, I mean, he seems to be moving in the right direction. Maybe mm-hmm. just because there's no other direction you could possibly move. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, is, 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 is what we're doing now going to make a big difference? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think, I, I think the, the social distancing will absolutely flatten out the case presentations. I think that, um, as, as you and I talked about a little bit, and again, I don't know whether you know, Dr. Jerry talked about this. He did talk but, about that, yes. Yeah, you know, but the, as we said, viruses change their lethality to um, accommodate their transmissibility. And what that means is if you make it more difficult for the virus to um, transmit itself, it's able, through what's called genetic drift, to be able to actually change its lethality. And the harder it is to transmit, the less lethal it becomes because you, to be able to replicate yourself and then transmit more copies, you need the host to live longer if it's harder to transmit. See, what's happened is is that the belief is is that the R0 in Wuhan, that is the number of people who would become infected by coming in contact with um, a, a carrier of the virus, was somewhere around two to three. Um, and, and that meant that, you know, that that's the exponential factor of if one person has it, they can infect two to three people. Yeah. But, you know, for instance, the flu through vaccination starts there, but then usually ends up 0.8, less than one, meaning that if you are able to interfere with transmissibility, then the next thing that happens is it becomes less lethal. So, um, so yes. Maybe, maybe you know the answer to this, Charles, but back in 1918, the, the influenza that killed, what, 50 million people, how did that eventually run its course? Because we didn't have the same capacity to respond then as we do now. What eventually caused that influenza to run out of steam? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not a virologist, but um, the history of, of that pandemic was actually quite interesting. It came basically out of the trenches of World War One. The reason it's called the Spanish flu is the Spaniards are the only ones to be actually honest early on about what was going on. Well, um, so so we, 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 we reward their honesty by naming the flu after them. By naming it after yeah, them. Yeah, well. And <laughs> the, the, you know, first of all, they thought it was caused by a bacteria. They didn't really know about viruses at that point and what eventually happened was that the same thing the 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 weakest and and the first to to succumb began to make it harder for it to transmit and it did have some seasonality um just like influenza of today and that's what eventually caused it to run its course was because of this high lethality and ironically that flu was highly lethal to young people and not the elderly. And this is the opposite. So it yeah. Just, yeah. yeah, it was the opposite. And to some degree, that was probably because of the issue of the proximity of so many young men so, in the trenches. So do I, do I, we're going to run out of time here shortly on this com, this segment, but my, my understanding of what's happening in Britain and, and Britain's response is to basically let the, let the thing run its course? Is that, am I, am I reading that correctly? Right. They're not, they're not, it's not like, you know, taking your kid with chicken pox and finding somebody else with chicken pox so they can get it before it, it would sterilize you as a male by getting it later in life. Yeah, what the British have, have kind of, they accept that, it, that it's going to overrun their system, which I, I hate to say does give a, a lie to some degree to Sanders' argument about if we had, a, if we had uh, you know, a one-payer healthcare system, it would be different. I don't actually think that would be true. Um, but the... Um, the British are basically going with the idea that if you let your um, least vulnerable be exposed to this, it would create a buttress of people that the virus cannot transmit past. Is that true? So that, well, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the idea of herd immunity. You know, mm-hmm. so since we do know from the experience elsewhere that it's mostly been the young who have been unaffected by this, their feeling is is that that they're going to let the virus run its course in the young, which would leave a huge pool of um, those who are now immune to this virus, and they would interpose themselves between the virus and the more vulnerable populations. So that, that sounds like a very them. different approach than most of the world is employing, which makes more yeah. sense for the U.S. Right, and, and in Korea, they used a completely different approach. In Korea, they, they immediately started testing a huge number of people, 
finding who they were, who their contacts were, quarantining them, and they were able to get by with, so far, I think only 70 deaths in the entire country. Right. So you would opt for the quarantine approach, not the herd immunity approach that the British are employing? Um, I, I think it's a little bit hard to talk Americans into that. See, and, and, and that's the reason why closing schools is highly controversial. There actually is very little literature that supports that closing schools independently affects um, pandemics. There are other factors that happen when you close schools or when you keep them open that uh, do have an effect on transmissibility. So, so I'm not totally agreeing that, I'm not sure all schools should have been closed, but I understand if we're going to go with so, that. So you're, 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 you, you, support, so you, do, you would support a selective social isolation, but not maybe shutting down schools? Well, I'm not, because you can screen in the schools, and therefore you could call from the schools. Gotcha. It's just very hard to tell people that their children are going to serve this purpose. Well, I got to run to a break, Charles. When we come back, I want to talk about how the coronavirus might be impacting the presidential campaign. You up for that conversation? Oh, sure. All right. <laughs> we'll be back in a few minutes, folks, uh, talking to Dr. Charles Goldman here on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here. A quick shout out to some of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store located at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. Also a great, pl a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And Gateway has a catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. And thanks to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can take classes to learn how to turn your lawn, your yard, into dinner. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Okay, welcome back to the program. Uh, Dr. Charles Goldman here. We have been discussing the coronavirus, and I am interested in knowing your opinion, Charles, about how you think the coronavirus, uh, the situation here, is going to affect the presidential campaign, which is, again, on the Democratic side, still technically a battle between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. But I think most people are beginning to see the writing on the wall of which direction that's going to go. Yeah, I think, you know, the debate the other night, where they spent a lot of time on this, highlighted that, you know, Bernie is kind of a one-trick pony here. Um, you mean Medicare for and, All? And, right. And and I don't see Medicare for All in most ways having this end differently. You know, there's the capability of 65,000 ventilators in the United States is what it is. And in Medicare for All, I'm not sure what would be the incentive for us to have a, you know, a independent of, of what we're now experiencing a store of 20 or 30 or 40,000 ventilators sitting around unused. You know, so the, um, the, the reality would be that whether it's Medicare for all or this sort of hybrid system we have, we'd still have the same issue of what's the appropriate way to use these ventilators right. as this virus goes along. But the other problem, yeah, the other thing would be, and, and this is, I think this is where, where Bernie is missing the point. It's not, Medicare for all is still not a public health system. The problem in this country is we don't have a public health system. Medicare for all could generate a unified data scheme 
and availability that would allow us to have a true public health system. But in and of itself, it's not a public health system. Right, so but, but, that's but, why I but, think he's simplifying it. Well, Sanders used the coronavirus conversation as a way to talk about the broader concerns about health care. And, yeah, that, yeah, again, beyond, beyond whether or not he's being realistic about the, um, the uh, ability of a single-payer system to address a you know, crisis like the coronavirus, I mean, he, I think his attempt was to try to tap into the hunger that the American people have for a system that doesn't cost them $10,000 a year in insurance policies. It doesn't require them to pay ridiculous amounts of money in deductibles and out-of-pocket expenses. And um, to you know to to craft a system that that um, that better needs people's needs at a more affordable cost. And I guess my question for you is, is that argument too little, too late at this point? Is he did did, yeah. did he have any did he have any success at shifting the electorate in the right direction on this? Um, I mean, numbers would say he did slightly, but I think for the most part, um, people are realizing that this issue is a separate issue. And what about the fact that, that, that you've got states now, I mean, we, we have, we have uh, Florida, Illinois, and Arizona voting this week, but some states are postponing their primaries. Is that going to benefit one or the other of the two Democratic candidates? Well, I think that the, 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 the inability to be out and stumping in person absolutely hurts Sanders because he is, of the two of them, much more um, in some ways akin to Trump, um, uh, you know, much more energetic on the stump and, and, and really he drives a lot of interest and uh, uh, fealty to him based on, on the energy and the breath and the, you know, he's kind of a stem winder there on the stump, whereas, you know, Biden talks for about seven minutes and we're done, you know. Right. So I, I think, yes, I mean, the dynamic for Sanders is clearly hurt by the fact that this is basically now looking to be an election that upcoming into the convention, if it occurs, um, is going to be mostly uh, live streaming. Yeah. And yes, that hurts Sanders the most. So, so what about the general um, election? I mean, let's assume a Biden nomination. Mm-hmm. How does the coronavirus affect Donald Trump's chances of re-election? Um, I, 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 I think that, except for the dead-enders, um, he's cooked. Because it, it was patently clear that he didn't have a clue what to do, that um, he was lying about things that now mattered, Wait, that having lied for three years really hurts when you're actually trying to tell the truth. So, how, but, yeah, but how, is that, how is that any different than anything he's been doing for the last three-plus years? Uh, because I think this is way more personal to most people than much of what... The arguments, for instance, over, you know, why lowering the mileage on the fleet mileage would be good for everybody. It, it, it's too arcane. People don't don't have that kind of policy depth. Well, Most people have the kind of policy depth that Donald Trump exhibits. But here was a situation where they are looking at potentially a mortal situation, potentially a situation where freedoms are going to be taken away for a period of time. And I think that really scares a lot of people that the person taking away their freedom is Donald Trump. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think they're going to blame Donald Trump. I think they're going to blame the Chinese. He's called it the Chinese virus, the foreign virus. So they're going to—I mean, he's attempted to blame the Democrats for this. And I, you know, it's, but again, he's, he's only talking to his base, and it, it, the independents aren't going to fall for that because they—they they understand that viruses. I mean, he's saying things like, "See the wall; it's really helped us." You know, no, this this virus got flown in. You know, over any wall you could put up. I mean, people with a modicum of intelligence are going to understand the stupidity of what he's saying, and that. And, and then, you know, when they asked him about, well, do you take any responsibility for the, the, you know, unavailability of testing? And he said, no, not at all. I think he's going to live to regret that. See, I thought, I thought that Biden was going to be weakened by the fact that they were able, they were going to be able to slam him continuously. All we were going to hear about was was Burisma. And and Hunter Biden, et cetera. Now that none of that's going to matter. Well, they're going to they're, they're going to continue to hammer Biden on uh, being uh, kind of edgy with voters, uh, I'm, and I'm one of them. But <laughs> that, uh, that, yeah. that went viral. The uh, that that his interactions with people are. Are you happy about that now, Ed? No, I'm 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 not I'm not happy or unhappy about it. I'm I'm happy that I asked him a question on climate change. I'm disappointed that he chose to take it off into a bizarre direction. 
Right. And you know, and that's that's in every well, I, you could argue that the guy that he called fat and challenged to push-ups, he was kind of he was a bit edgy, a bit pushy. He was um, mm-hmm. I, I was not I was not asking Trump anything that wasn't you know uncommon or or really that difficult. And neither was that gal in New Hampshire. But but I you know I just wonder whether. You know that uh, that drum is going to continue to be beaten by Fox News and other other pro-Trump outlets to the point where it may override concerns that people might have about how he has handled the coronavirus. Well, I mean, Fox News is becoming pretty fractured about the virus. I mean, you still have That's true. you know your your Hannity's and and what's her name uh, was on after right before him. Laura Ingraham. Laura Ingram, yeah. yeah, but you know, um, there there are others on Fox News uh, who are saying just the opposite. Well, Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson, for example, Tucker Carlson you know? actually went specifically to Mar-a-Lago two weekends ago to tell the president, "You need to shut up and you need to listen <laughs> and stop listening to Hannity, who's telling you it's all a hoax, and you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh, the Medal of Freedom winner, telling you it's all a hoax." He said, "You know," and he, he told Trump. He said, because all they're going to do is play that you saying that, and then the death toll, state by state, will be played on the other side in a split panel in that commercial, and your presidency is done. So perhaps an appropriate analogy, as painful as it might be, would be with Vietnam. Uh, as the uh, body bags continue to come in, and the, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 uh, the, the count of American soldiers dead rose higher and higher, and coupled with that, the horrific imagery of... Uh, of children, Vietnamese children running away from flaming villages that were bombed and and suffering from the the impact of napalm. Perhaps those, um, you know, perhaps the comparable experience of people seeing their relatives, their community members, their grandparents, their parents die of coronavirus is going to have that kind of an impact. Um, I'm trying to paraphrase what I think you're suggesting, but maybe that's it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good point, which is that and, and it's really interesting you picked the Vietnam example because the Vietnam example in terms of the role journalists played in Vietnam was that they drove the narrative, the counter-narrative to what the government was saying. You know, and then when, I guess it was, I think it was Life magazine that, you know, one week they just simply put the pictures of the dead, you know, the men who had died, the men and women who had died that week in Vietnam, and they just, it was just a roll of the pictures. You know, um, it was over at that point. It was clear that the country, although it took period of time, uh, you know, through the Nixon administration, it was done. So and is it, I think this same right. thing is going to happen here. Well, now, in, in that case, of course, the Vietnam War continued for a long time. This coronavirus problem is likely going to be over in, what, a couple, three months at most? Well, that's what it seems like. I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. I mean, okay, it depends so, on whether throughout the country, yeah. it depends on whether there is a seasonality to this virus. We don't know it's a new virus. Um I think the longer it goes, the worse it is for Trump. Right. You know, yeah, that's my point. What's what if by June and July, it's no longer an issue? Then we aren't going to see a death count continuing to mount toward the toward the general election. And again, this is a very cynical view, but this is how things often work in the political realm. And so the, again, that'll be forgotten. Trump, the, the economy will start coming back. Trump will take credit for it, and uh, Joe Biden will have a heck of a time pushing back against that kind of uh, that kind of momentum. I mean, am I I'm just throwing yeah, a one scenario? That, no, that, I, I think that's certainly that's certainly a possibility. But he he's going to be starting from a much lower level of approval because people's parents, perhaps their children, perhaps themselves, are going to be fatalities of this, and and they understand that he didn't cause the virus. They're not going to buy his nonsense about it being a Chinese virus. It, you know that it, it happened in China. It's in fact no different than the Spanish flu. Right. You know. I mean, because remember that the Chinese, in spite of initially suppressing information, causing the loss of a number of weeks, also sequenced the virus in less than a week after it became clear what was going on, mm-hmm. and that sequencing allowed the WHO to come up with their test. So um, I, again, I, I the, the nativism of calling it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. This is all about, you know, just appealing to the same, the dead-enders. Or a foreign virus. I like that one, too. A foreign virus. Well, all viruses are foreign. They're all foreign to our system, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I I think he has looked so feckless and 
beyond. Yeah. And, and, and I think the idea, and this is, again, I think what works against Sanders. I think people feel like somebody who has not a clue how the government works, how to make it work for the American people, you know, um, is going to be in a weaker position. And that's going to be Trump versus yeah. Biden. Well, we shall I see. Think, yeah. Again, I, I, I think it's going to be an interesting and ongoing conversation. Uh, Charles, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Folks, we've been talking to Dr. Charles Goldman. And, uh, uh, yeah, so stay tuned, folks. we got more coming on this program in a bit. And, again, uh, you can always check out podcasts on the Fallon Forum website. And the show rebroadcasts on stations in Ames, Iowa City, and elsewhere on community-owned stations around the country. Back in a few minutes, folks. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally-owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan-baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here. We're continuing our broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa. A quick shout out to some of our local business partners. Thanks to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Noche Cabaret and Jazz, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park. That's uh, Des Moines' premier location for jazz and cabaret, and they've got an excellent cocktail bar as well. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, again, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in today, and we're going to wrap it up here by talking with Ron Yarnell about something to do with St. Patrick's Day, because how can we not do that? Even though the St. Patrick's Day parade in Dublin, as in most places, has been canceled, you know, we should still be out there celebrating in our own little way, in our own little isolated, cloistered way. And um, I can't think of a better way to celebrate than by talking with Ron about the amazing transformation that's occurring in Ireland. You know, we, we, we've seen what's happened in the U.S. and Britain and all these other places, you know, where you've had rather right-wing governments take over. Well, in, in Ireland, last month in February, Sinn Féin, the party that, uh, the, the political spinoff of what the IRA was, won the majority of seats in the Irish Parliament. Ron, are you still reeling from that? Uh, I've been following this uh, since uh, Sinn Féin uh, gained seven seats in uh, Westminster, the British Parliament, and together with uh, the SDLP, the Social Democrat Labour Party, uh, made, a, made it possible for, for the Irish nationalist group to be the dominant uh, group in Westminster from Northern Ireland. That, that, that's a that's an amazing transformation. Uh, formerly, the uh, the unionist uh, parties were dominant, and uh, now the the nationalist groups. But we're we're talking. I mean, I mean, they're, they're they're prominent. The Sinn Fein is prominent in the Northern Ireland Parliament for sure, but they're also dominant now in the Irish Republican Parliament. Right. Yeah. And, and I and I don't understand what it is, other than the disaffection with the long term uh, traditional uh, republic parties like. Uh, Fiona 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 and Fine Gael uh, right. have uh, basically traded off power over the uh, years since the revolution in 1922. Right. And, uh, you know, and much has been accomplished, one might say, but I think there is dissatisfaction. The interesting thing to me about Sinn Féin's rise to power in Ireland is it is a party of the political left. 
It is a very pro-immigrant party, a pro-worker party, a pro-reform party. It's, uh, you know, if our Democratic Party actually had a backbone, you know, that might be what it would look like. <laughs> so it's a very different scenario than what we've seen in other countries that have tended to go hard right. You know, not just the U.S., not just Britain. You've got Australia, Brazil, uh, India. Uh, and here in Ireland, they're going the other direction. And so, I mean, do you, do you have an explanation for that? Well, uh, first of all, I would also say that Sinn Féin does speak, have a dark side to it. Okay, it, speak, it was, speak, Ron, speak up a little bit, would you? Sinn Féin also has a dark side to it, too. You know? uh, they were the political expression of the IRA uh, for many years. Uh, and there's been some controversy how culpable uh, Sinn Féin uh, figures like Jerry Adams are uh, in regards to IRA actions. So there's that there, too, uh, which, which, again, is like I'm trying to figure out how they've kind of mainstreamed themselves. Well, again, I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think Sinn Féin should be held accountable for the past sins of the IRA, and I am not an IRA fan. Uh, my, my experiences with the, with the IRA in Ireland are not favorable. My first memory is uh, uh, when I was age eight, and we were driving along a um, ravine in Northern Ireland, and my mom saw a man with a gun holding a dead a, a body in his arms. And uh, actually, there were two men holding a, a body in their arms. And uh, it totally freaked her out. Um, I, I've seen, I, I made friends with a couple guys, uh, Jerry from Derry, Jerry from, from uh, Belfast, and, and one of them had his mother and sister blown up in a pub in the mid-70s. My dad was, right. in, my, my dad was in our bank in Balahadrine when, uh, well, he, he had just left the bank, and then literally within 20 minutes after that, two men ran in and robbed it, and they were on, on, at the behest of the IRA, and they shot and killed two uh, Irish detectives. I mean, not, all my experiences with the IRA have been bad. <laughs> so I'm no fan of the IRA, but I think Sinn Féin, I mean, for, I mean, for a long time, the U.S. has been encouraging uh, you know, the, the, the Sinn Féin to distance itself from the violence to move beyond the approach that the IRA has taken to trying to secure unification well, of the country. And, 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 now, and now they're, you know, they've, they've done it. So good, right? I, I don't know because um, uh, the big breakthrough in Northern Ireland, for example, was the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which was, what was that, 22 years ago. And that was an agreement that was uh, brokered between the... Uh, uh, let me make sure I have this right. Was it the Democratic Unionist Party, basically the Unionist Party, and the uh, Social Democratic and Labour Party, uh, which was which is the nonviolent, uh, uh, nonviolent Nationalist Party in, Nor in Northern Ireland. And since then, SDLP has kind of gone into a decline, and Sinn Fein has kind of taken their place. And I, I'm trying to understand the mechanics of that other than maybe a frustration with politics as usual. I, I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm grappling with the question why Sinn Féin uh, has emerged as, as a popular party. Well, I, th uh, when I, think, I think the same reason Bernie Sanders has emerged as a popular politician in this country, he's been talking about things that really matter to people. He's been inspiring them to believe the government can actually do more than just you know, support the status quo, that it can do more than just be the mouthpiece of the rich and powerful. And obviously, Ireland's rich and powerful are nowhere near as uh, as uh, as problematic as those in our country and elsewhere in the world. But but I think that same hunger for a a, a new direction, a more populist movement, it exists, and it's 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 coming to fruition. Well, you know, the other thing that's happened is, uh, especially with the rise of uh, the the kind of I guess you can call it kind of a nationalist coalition. And uh, at Westminster, which, well, mostly uh, Sinn Féin, uh, I think seven members of Sinn Féin, who, by the way, have an abstentious right. they, they, uh, policy. Yeah, they're, they mem they're, they're, they're members of parliament, but they refuse to vote on principle. Right, because I think part of it, they have to swear an allegiance to the crown. Right. And that goes against right. their principle. Uh, but, you know, there's seven of them, and there are two SDLP members, so that's nine versus the seven unionist uh, party members from Northern Ireland. I think a lot of it has to do with Brexit, too. Yeah. And that um, uh, kind of a backlash to Brexit because for a long time after the Good Friday Agreement, uh, Northern Ireland has undergone a transformation uh, from what I hear. I mean, 
Belfast, you know, you, you were both old enough to read when we hear the word Belfast, we kind of think of a bombed out, terrorized city, divided, all those well, kinds of things. Yeah, it was, a, it, it was a scary place back when I was a kid. I, You know, I remember um, it was also a place where Irish Catholics from, well, from, from the South and also from this country didn't feel particularly welcome. I remember my... Uh, my dad, who again is first generation Irish American, he was—he uh, thought it would be interesting to go in and check out the British Parliament building in Belfast. And his um, his father, my grandfather, said no self-respecting Irishman would go in there. So you know, and 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 maybe that's changing. But uh, to me, what's most exciting is to see. Uh, well, I, I think I'm I'm excited by both things by the fact that Ireland is 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 crafting a new direction, the the, the Republic of Ireland, and also that. We are making very incremental progress toward peace and unity in the north. And I, you know, and I do think that eventually those six counties that are part of the north will be unified with the with the other counties. Um, I, I think it's, that, that that to me has to happen. It's a lot. It's it's geographically logical. It's historically logical. You know, every nation has its minorities. And if you've got a Protestant minority in the north, there's no reason why they shouldn't be uh, treated as equally as, you know, as equal citizens as everyone else. And and I, I think I think also the the influence of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, that is, is becoming, you know, less and less powerful in the Republic of Ireland, and that bodes well for again eventual unity. And you know what may have helped unity more than anything, in my opinion, Ron, Brexit. I mean, Northern Ireland was was one of the elements of the United Kingdom to vote against Brexit, and that right. and the fact that that has continued to move forward in the wrong direction from a Northern Irish person's, you know, point of view, that is problematic. And it may also, again, be continuing to force uh, force Ireland toward that direction where the unification of all 32 counties is inevitable. Well, and, and, and I'm kind of looking at that, and I'm wondering, uh, that, that's fine to say from our perspective, but if you're a... Northern Ireland is a, a strange place because... Uh, from what I can tell, because half the people identify as Irish, the other half identify as British. I mean, that's just the basic lay of the land. And if you identify yourself as being British, uh, which would be most of the Ulster Protestants, uh, what stake would you have in the Republic of Ireland? Why would you want to be part of the Republic of Ireland? Um, especially since there's generations... Uh, I, what I briefly experienced, I, I, have, I was in Ireland some years ago, uh, 1997, so it was a long time ago. But I remember we were up in Northern Ireland, and the the uh, the Unionist uh, population, they have kind of a superiority complex going for them. Um, they kind of see themselves as part of the United Kingdom, uh, even though I think that they think better of themselves than maybe people in Great Britain think of Ulster. <laughs> kind of one of those... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think if I right. think if you're English, if think if you're English, you think of ulcer as nothing being more just a bunch of bunch of problems that are constantly being foisted upon you mm. uh, than anything else. But uh, you know, it become it becomes that kind of issue. Uh, I, I've long wondered for the for the republic for the uh, the political establishment in the republic. Uh, there's the rhetoric, United Ireland, and all that stuff. But do they really want? Northern Ireland, do they really want Ulster unite with them, given the prospective problems of having a, a dissident minority? And, and I don't have the answer for that. Uh, I do know that under the uh, under the Good Friday Agreement, uh, if you were if you were an Irish Catholic, if you were an Irish nationalist, which are basically the same things, uh, you could be Irish as you wanted. You could get an Irish passport. And, and, you know, and, so. and again, Ron, Ron, remember that there are there are. There are increasing numbers of minority populations in the Republic of Ireland, yes, complements yes. of Ireland's enrollment in the European Union. You see yeah. um, a tremendous number of folks um, moving to Ireland from Eastern Europe, from the Mideast, yeah. uh, from other yeah. parts of the world. And, uh, you know, there, by some estimates, um, the percentage of the Irish population that will remain purely Celtic, again, whatever that means, what is, is purely Celtic, I assume that... That, that also includes um, Norman influences and um, the, uh, the influences from Spain because of the Spanish Armada. Who knows what else? 
Um, so purity of stock is, is really a myth, and that's going to be changing dramatically. So I, I think with the, with the inclusion of all these additional minority populations in a country that is half the size of Iowa, you know, in, 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 in geographically, and I guess twice the size in population, I don't think it's going to be that hard to assimilate the, you know, the Scottish Presbyterian descended population in Northern Ireland. I think it's going to be, I think in our lifetime, we're going to see that unification occur. And I, I, for one, am excited about that, and I'm excited to see uh, Sinn Féin, you know, being a part of this process and not, and not, you know, the IRA being the leading voice of dissension. I would, I'm, I'm going to just leave that up to the, uh, the, the specific parties in Northern Ireland. Now, what I've seen in the Good Friday, uh, the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement, is also, the, by the other token, uh, people in Northern Ireland who want to be British, they got to be British. And basically, they kind of worked out their differences, and uh, it's not been without incident. I mean, there, you know, you have a third, 30 years of the Troubles. You breed uh, certain personalities that can't live without the Troubles. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. that's just kind of, so there, there, so there are remnants of those kind of folks in Northern Ireland. But I get the stronger sense that Northern Ireland really, as, as, a, as a combined community, as both yeah. uh, nationalists and unionists, uh, Protestant and Catholic, they really finally want to get past that bad history. Ron, the I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna history. give you, the, I'm gonna give you the last word and cut you off because we got to wrap up the program here. Thanks for joining us, uh, Ron. Yarnell's been our guest, folks. So this is Ed Fallon, your host. Thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. Uh, thanks to our local affiliates in Iowa and elsewhere in the country for rebroadcasting this program. And thanks to you, our audience. We'll be back uh, next week with new content and interesting conversations on the Fallon Forum.